This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by The New Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Empire of Rubber, Firestone's Scramble for Land and Power in Liberia by Greg Mittman. In the 1920s, Americans consumed 75% of the world's rubber, but only 1% of it grew under the U.S. flag. Empire of Rubber tells a sweeping story of capitalism, racial exploitation, environmental devastation, and resistance as the Firestone Tire and Rubber Company transformed Liberia into America's rubber empire. Historian and filmmaker Greg Mittman unearths a history of promises unfulfilled, revealing a history of racial segregation and medical experimentation. As Firestone reaped fortunes, wealth and power concentrated in the hands of a few elites, fostering widespread inequalities that fed unrest and, eventually, civil war. Empire of Rubber, Firestone's Scramble for Land and Power in Liberia by Greg Mittman, coming soon from the New Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. What are the politics of sex? Should there be a politics of sex? Or is desire an inevitably private matter that cannot be sensibly subjected to the sort of scrutiny of power relations that we apply to the power systems that govern our economy and society as a whole? Should we interrogate the ways in which gendered, racialized, and classed forms of power shape who and what we want? Or is that very proposition a recipe for an authoritarian and carceral moralism? In her new essay collection, The Right to Sex, Feminism in the 21st Century, philosopher Amiya Srinivasan attempts to answer these questions and more, and concludes sometimes that there are no easy answers at all. Amiya's book takes on the politics of porn, incels, and campus sex by engaging the raging debates of second-wave feminism's sex wars, drawing thinkers new and old into conversation about sexuality today. Before we get rolling, I hope if you support The Dig on Patreon.com that you have been reading our new newsletter that we send each and every week to people who contribute to The Dig at Patreon.com slash the Dig. The newsletter is also available on our website, but if you want it emailed to you every week, and I think that you do want it emailed to you every week because it is very, very good, please make a monthly contribution at patreon.com slash the dig. A contribution of any amount at all, any amount is just fine. That is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. We rely on your support to put this podcast out making it freely available to all, regardless of their ability to pay. If you can afford to contribute, please do. In other news, if you'd like to hear your book advertised on The Dig, please have your publicist email digradiopod at gmail.com. Thank you, and here's Amiya Srinivasan, a professor of social and political theory at All Souls College and the author of The Right to Sex, Feminism in the 21st Century. Amiya Srinivasan, welcome to The Dig. Thank you so much for having me. 
You write that your book recuperates, quote, an older feminist tradition that was unafraid to think of sex as a political phenomenon, as squarely within the bounds of social critique. But aspects of that tradition, particularly its carceral politics, some of the leading figures of that tradition, particularly Catherine McKinnon, bring quite a lot of controversy and baggage with them. What is this older feminist tradition and what can be recuperated and then what can or should not? So the tradition that I have in mind and that I draw on is one that sees sex as not merely a personal phenomenon, that sees it as a squarely political phenomenon, um, sees it as something shaped by political forces, most obviously shaped by patriarchal ideology, but also shaped by racism, classism, and also thus thinks of it as squarely subject to forms of political critique. You can make substantive political judgments about how we relate to each other as sexual beings. So what should we keep of that? I mean, so one reason I think we should return to to that tradition, at least in some sense return, is that it's simply demanded of us by intersectionality. So I think there's actually a kind of interesting, if not contradiction, very serious tension within a lot of contemporary mainstream feminism between on one hand, a commitment to intersectionality, so taking seriously the way things like race and class inflect and shape people's experiences of patriarchy, while at the same time, abjuring a kind of political critique of sexual desire in particular, which is a legacy of sex positivity. And there's a tension there because if you're simply going to take people's sexual desires as beyond the realm of political critique, then you're not going to be able to say anything about something like sexual racism. So I think there is a kind of interesting problem with this particular moment in what you might call third wave third wave feminism uh, that requires some kind of re-engagement, if not return, to this kind of earlier feminist way of thinking that was that was pretty just unafraid to, to talk about the, the politics of sex. I think fear is an important thing to talk about here. Um, it's not simply that feminists, you know, don't know that there's a politics to sex and that sex is shaped by politics. I mean, we all sort of know it, right? But there's a certain amount of disavowal of that knowledge, I think, because of the political implications that followed from experimentation with thinking about the politics of sex in the 70s in particular. So there's sort of two sets of consequences that I think were and remain really, really troubling. So on one hand, there's something that happens within feminism. You know, you have this focus on a personal politics, which lots of people find very emancipatory in certain ways, but also can take on a certain kind of authoritarian moralism, right? So demanding that people, you know, to count as really feminists or to be part of your feminist group, uh, either practice political lesbianism or separatism, or at least there's a kind of implied or sometimes more explicitly expressed condemnation of, of, of women who live their lives with men. And unsurprisingly, that drives people out of a movement. So there's there's just that that long legacy. And, and, and that played out in a very kind of real way for women in the early women's liberation movement. And then there are the 
as it were, like more outward political consequences of the way in which a critique of sexual desire then turns into a critique of pornography, which transforms from an early kind of grassroots campaign against forms of sexual imagery to a full invocation of carceral state power, not just against pornography, but also against uh, sex work, against prostitution in particular, everything that sort of follows from that. So in terms of what we should keep and, and what we should uh, let go, I mean, I think the interesting question is, how do you re-engage a political critique of sex without alienating lots of women from the feminist movement or feminist movements, plural, and without invoking forms of state power that then crush the worst off women, um, arguably the women who in at least one sense sort of need need feminism the most. You first turn to the politics of, of Me Too, and you describe false rape accusations as exceedingly rare and yet simultaneously ubiquitous, a ubiquitous topic of discussion in public discourse. Quote, a false rape accusation, like a plane crash, is an objectively unusual event that occupies an outsized place in the public imagination. Why, then, does it carry its cultural charge? Let me pose that question right back to you. If false rape accusations are so rare, why is it that they generate so much attention and worry? Yeah, so the the, the data that we have suggests that they are objectively uh, rare. I mean, what, one really interesting uh, data point is that many more men by like several orders of magnitude are are raped every year in the US than falsely accused of rape. So maybe the most obvious answer, which is that false rape accusations are something that target, are, you know, something that predominantly targets men. It can't be the full answer, right? Because actually many more men are subject to sexual violence, usually by other men, than are uh, subject to false rape accusation. So then the next step in the answer as well, it's something that is done by women against men, right? So most men who are subject to sexual violence are subjected to, are, are the victims of other men, whereas uh, the false rape accusation is, you know, seems like a specifically female crime, right? It's an attempt by a woman to use the power available to her, specifically the power of the state against uh, men. That, again, is actually not, as far as we can tell, particularly accurate. So our stereotypical picture of the false rape accusation is a scorned woman or an angry woman vengefully accusing a, a man that she knows and, and is prop, has had some relationship with of, of, of raping her when he didn't. But it, if you look at the data, it seems that most of the people who at least are convicted and then later exonerated of sexual crimes that they didn't commit were actually falsely accused by effectively like the police and judicial system working in concert. So police very often coach false uh, victim statements and false witness statements, especially against men of color. And this is aided and abetted by the fact that white people can't really tell black people apart with as, as much reliability, reliability as they obviously should. Um, so very often you actually have male police officers um, and then further down the line, like male attorneys 
conspiring against usually men of color um, to charge them falsely with rape accusations. You write, quote, there is no general conspiracy against men, but there is a conspiracy against certain classes of men. Right. So, you know, I mean, the the U.S. in particular, uh, but not only the U.S., has this very long history of the false rape accusation being mobilized against men of color, black men in particular, and unsurprisingly, black men, uh, all the evidence suggests that black men are falsely convicted at much higher rates for all sorts of crimes, including sexual violence, sexual assault, and rape. So what I want to suggest is that the kind of cultural anxiety around the false rape accusation, which is an anxiety that justifiably Black men um, and men of color more generally could express, but is in fact something that's very often expressed by white middle-class men. And we have to say, like, the mothers of white middle-class would-be men is an anxiety that that's also about people who are normally shielded from the coercive power of the state being subjected to it. So I think it's anxiety about male entitlement, but also about race and about class. Is Believe Women an inevitably and irreparably carceral injunction? Is it a call to end sexual violence or is it a demand that we trust the prosecution or is it a contradictory thing entirely? So I think believe women or I believe her as a slogan could be all sorts of different things. Um, I think there's a question about how, I think the interesting political question though is how it in fact is working now. So I think in many cases, it's not supposed to be intentionally carceral, although of course, in some cases it is, right? So in the in the mouths of some women and in the mouths of some men, you know, it's like, this woman has said that she has been assaulted. I believe her and I want the full force of the law to come down on this man and I want him imprisoned, right? So that's an explicitly sort of carceral statement. But I also think there's a version of, you know, I believe her where it's consistent with the thought that, well, this person should still have access to kind of due process. If I were on the jury, I wouldn't be saying this. Uh, the issue is really about what I'm trying to do is anticipate the fact that I doubt that this woman is going to get a fair hearing, right? So I anticipate the fact that she is going to be kind of systematically disbelieved. She is going to encounter a conspiracy of disbelief. And so it's a kind of gesture of epistemic solidarity in advance of everything that I know is going to play out. Nonetheless, <laughs> it's a very blunt slogan and one that doesn't register the very problematic history of false allegations being mobilized against men of color and poor men, but also one that doesn't have a fully resolved relationship to carceralism. Where does that leave anti-carceral feminist politics if the reigning debate tends to almost exclusively feature on the one hand, carceral feminists portrayed as holding the true feminist position on the one hand, facing off against aggrieved, well-to-do white men on the other. What does it mean if the truth is not in the middle of those two positions, but coming from another perspective entirely, a perspective that we don't hear much about? I mean, the sad thing to say is that at the end of the day, oh, should I say this on this podcast? Anyway, <laughs> you know, <laughs> something like the Harvey Weinstein case, as important as that is, probably shouldn't be our test case for thinking about what you want the law of sexual assault to look like. 
I mean, so in general, I think that when we think about the law, we have to be thoroughgoing realists about it. We have to see what its actual consequences are. And the thing about you know, the carceral machine more broadly is that you don't really get to pick and choose uh, who it takes down once you start it up. So it's really unfortunate, although totally unsurprising, that the kind of standard dialectic is, you know, the feminists who want to see someone like Larry Nasser, Nasser, um, you know, not just incarcerated by, but raped in prison. Uh, That's what, (laughs) on the one hand, versus um, those who want to just say that there's a conspiracy um, against, you know, wealthy white men to either um, accuse them of things they haven't done or actually more often to kind of overreact to completely, if not legitimate, then at least excusable things that they have done. And there's just this kind of missing third term here, which is, which has to do with, well, what does it really look like to have a remedy, an actual remedy to sexual injustice? I I think maybe one way of getting at this to, to, to to allow people who are stuck in this particular debate to see see it is just as, to point out that the vast majority of victims of sexual violence now don't ha- get no remedy, are underserved, are totally failed by the system. So to ask yourself the question, well, what would it be to move away from a carceral response to sexual violence, isn't, though it might feel that way, to just abandon all of those women. Those women have already been abandoned. You write about the Kavanaugh case as a case in point. Quote, the solidarity on show from the people who knew Kavanaugh when young, what Kavanaugh calls friendship, was the solidarity of rich white people. Do you believe that a black or brown Kavanaugh is actually unimaginable? Because although I I definitely agree with your general argument here, I think we can perhaps imagine a black Kavanaugh. Maybe Clarence Thomas, his colleague on the Supreme Court, or maybe R. Kelly. What's the difference? Of course, it it depends on that what we're holding fixed and what we allowed to change. And so I was talking there about a very specific phenomenon, which was the, the particular invocations of childhood that were so importantly mobilized in the Kavanaugh case. So this picturing of these, this kind of ideal, very white suburban childhood where everyone's just good and wholesome and going to church and and playing sports but of course also doing bad you know naughty things like drinking and and hooking up with each other uh but but there was this kind of that was the vision that was mobilized i mean that was kavanaugh's ultimate defense was that he was one of those boys that wasn't r kelly's defense right in fact you know a huge reason why R. Kelly was able to get away with what he did get away with for so so long um, was because his victims were girls of color uh, in in the vast majority of cases. And his lawyers tried to remobilize that ineffectively in his most recent trial. Absolutely, and also, I mean, he was so they had to be discredited because, of course, um, black girls are fast and loose, right? So that that's what's going on there. And of course, there's the long history of, of Black men being falsely accused and lynched. So so that idea is going to be mobilized. With Clarence Thomas as well, the high-tech lynching. High-tech lynching, exactly. Um, so it's not that we can't imagine, in fact, don't have lots and lots of cases of incredibly powerful men of color who commit acts of sexual violence with impunity. But I think the specific narratives that are mobilized are, are different and are kind of interestingly different. 
You also write that it's not just the rightness or wrongness of an accusation that matters. You write, quote, If the aim is not merely to punish male sexual domination but to end it, feminism must address questions that many feminists would rather avoid. Whether a carceral approach that systematically harms poor people and people of color can serve sexual justice. Whether the notion of due process, and perhaps too the presumption of innocence, should apply to social media and public accusations. Whether punishment produces social change. What does it really take to alter the mind of patriarchy? What do you think it takes and why are these conversations that many feminists would often rather avoid? It's something that we will have to try to do. I mean, I don't think it's the kind of question one can answer totally a priori. I mean, it's never going to be a single thing. So, you know, I think it's very clear that certain underlying material realities buttress and reinforce patriarchal ideology. I mean, so, you know, there are certain economic circumstances that produce crises of masculinity uh, that exacerbate certain kind of uh, longstanding patriarchal ideologies and, and then have them kind of materially play out against, against women in, in the forms of uh, gendered violence, psychic and physical. But that's not a fundamental answer because, you know, there is this question about why when in moments of deindustrialization and crises of masculinity, men turn against the women in their lives. Right. And that's not going to be a question answered by economics, at least narrowly construed. I think there's going to be a psychoanalytic story here that has to do with questions about care and dependence and finitude and vulnerability and humans learning to get to grips with the fact of non-sovereignty and bodily non-sovereignty and the way in which women very often represent a threat to sovereignty uh, in the sense of sort of telling, revealing the lie about patriarchal individualism. I think there's a role for education, probably not really formal education, but, you know, forms of cultural education, forms of new new forms of community making. But I am skeptical about, about regulatory attempts to change the mind of patriarchy. And in particular, the way in which some people think that punishment might serve might serve that role. I mean, I think some some feminists just just want punishment. They just crave punishment, which I completely understand. And I actually think, in fact, there are plenty of people who deserve to be punished. But you've got to be honest when that's what you're going for. I, I certainly don't think patriarchy is reducible to capitalism. Obviously, patriarchal forms of organization predate capitalism and have existed outside of it. But I but I am a materialist on the count that I believe that the best way to change a mind is to change the material circumstances within which the mind exists. It's not a it's not a foolproof answer, but I don't it seems like a prerequisite at least. Yeah, it's absolutely a prerequisite. One reason it's a it's a pre prerequisite is not only because forms of deprivation and inequality, exploitation, um, alienation, all all produce uh, interpersonal violence, which they which they do. But it's also because I think the solutions to the further stuff that we're talking about, all of those kind of pre-capitalist forms of social relations that stay with us and that transcend capitalist relations, have to be solved by forms of social and political experimentation that people need time and leisure to 
bring into existence. Um, so, you know, the, the, the reason a material revolution has to be at the basis of, of feminism, I think, there are sort of three reasons. The most obvious reason is that the worst off women are the worst off women because of the deprivations and depredations of capitalism and, and racial capitalism in particular, but also because those conditions are breeding grounds um, for patriarchal entitlement. And finally, because it's only through the alleviation of those conditions that you could free women to actually have the time to engage in the kinds of social and political experimentation that I think would be truly needed for psychic transformation. Even feminists who are opposed to locking men up as the solution to sexual violence, I think, tend to argue that public shaming on the internet is another thing entirely. But I think you argue that it's wrong to dismiss the consequentiality of public and internet shaming. Why? So I think the idea that uh, public shaming online uh, has nothing to do, has no consequences that we should take seriously, is an instance of a more broadly pernicious trend, which is to to draw a sharp distinction between like the online world and the real world, which I think is just politically and also just psychologically, politically bad and psychologically. Yeah, Twitter makes me feel bad all the time for all sorts of reasons. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> I mean, and then, look, and, and then there are these very obvious cases where, you know, the, what happens online punches through into reality because people get fired and people's livelihoods can be imperiled. So this isn't to say that public shaming should never be a tool at the disposal of the left or feminists in general. Uh, obviously, there's something relatively more democratic about who gets to participate in acts of public shaming. But I think it's, I just think it's very, very naive to think that there are sort of no real world consequences, right? There are both like the psychic consequences uh, of being the object of that kind of the target of public shaming. And then there are also the, um, there are sometimes real world consequences in terms of getting someone fired. So I just think that we should be thinking more honestly and broadly about all of these different kinds of forms of social punishment and sanction and thinking about, you know, what we want to do with them and what sorts of norms should apply to them. You write, quote, the turn towards carceralism is part of a broader shift of emphasis within feminism since the 1970s, away from the transformation of socioeconomic life towards securing women's equality in the pre-existing structures of capitalism. That timeline also corresponds to the rise of neoliberalism. Is that is that a coincidence? And what exactly happened to feminism? I mean, I, I think I think it's hard to tell the full story um, of the transformation of American feminism in this period without thinking about the global neoliberal project. So I think it's very important that you you have the embrace of like the capitalist structure, both domestically and internationally, right? And in the as the sort of solution to, to women's problems, more broadly speaking. So what's interesting is that domestically in the US, what you're going to have is middle-class and wealthy women ascending to the, you know, the top of corporations and universities and 
the legal field in, in particular, I think Amer the story of American feminism cannot be told without the story of its relationship to the law. And those women are going to become symbols of women's emancipation domestically, but at the same time, it's going to be the mass entry of poor women globally into you know, a global system of capitalism with, with the US at its home that is supposed to be the, the solution to women's problems at the, at the international level. And specifically poor women are going to be given access to microcredit because their poverty is suddenly going to be uh, a problem that is going to be contained within their nuclear families. So there's gonna be individuals and families at the international level. They're going to be given access to credit Again, the family, just as it's going to happen in the US, is going to become like the site of end credit, which of course immiserates um, th these women. I mean, there's lots of specific things that happen with, with microcredit, right? So the way in which um, it often will make the women uh, who have the capacity to get these loans be subject to a lot of gendered violence from uh, their male partners. At the same time as they're accessing these loans, they are asking for more public infrastructure, uh, but you know that's not being responded to. So again, you see a kind of individualist ideology playing out, a, a very neoliberal ideology playing out on the global level. And I think that when you're thinking about like the, the feminist conscience in the US, I think that that story about what's going on globally is very important because it, uh, it it acts as a kind of cover for what is happening domestically, which is, you know, the, I mean, it's also happening internationally, the, the mass increase in uh, inequality and lots of new forms of economic domination. The debate over carceral feminism takes a complicated turn when it comes to higher ed, and specifically with Title IX, which is the federal law in the U.S. barring sex discrimination on college campuses. And while many feminists have been key to pushing for stricter enforcement of Title IX, some feminists have charged that in recent years that, quote, quotidian sexual interactions are now subject to hysterical moralism and to the regulatory overreach of what Sue Gerson and her husband, Jacob Gerson, have called the sex bureaucracy. What, in your view, is the, is the actual sex problem on college campuses? And then how, by contrast... Do Title IX regimes articulate that problem and the solutions to it? So the way that the conversation about Title IX sort of currently goes among feminists is that, especially you know, in the U.S., um, but increasingly I think in the in the U.K. where you see some of the same regulation coming over, is on one hand you have feminists who are on the whole kind of enthusiastic proponents of Title IX, and who think that it's a somewhat flawed, but ultimately really important mechanism for creating forms of sexual justice on uh, university campuses. And then you have people like the Gersons, whom you know I was just referring to in that, that bit of the book you hooded, but also someone like Laura Kipnis, who really think of it as bureaucratic overreach, responding hysterically to kind of non-existent problems, or at least problems that, sh that shouldn't be taken seriously as political problems to, to be resolved. And in Kipnis's case, sort of unsexy as well. Deeply unsexy. <laughs> like you're just denying how, you know, <laughs> the eroticism of the campus. And without wanting to say that, I think there's a middle way here. I think in a way, I mean, I think the, 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 both of these um, these perspectives sort of get something crucially wrong. So proponents of Title IX, I think, aren't willing to 
look straight in the face the actual consequences of Title IX. So Title IX, as you said, rules out sex discrimination, discrimination on the basis of sex in higher education, or at least those education institutions that get federal funding. But they do, it doesn't require any attention to other forms of uh, discrimination, like racial discrimination, class discrimination, and so on. And someone like Janet Halley has uh, spent a long time documenting the way in which members of marginalized groups, queer students, uh, students of color, undocumented students, disproportionately get subject to Title IX procedures and accusations. And that there are also just kind of more run-of-the-mill worries about due process and, and Title, Title IX. On the other hand, the Gersons and Kipnis don't want to acknowledge that there's a problem there, right? They want to think of, 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 of this as a kind of manufactured crisis, right? Now, on one hand, I think that the way we talk about university campuses and rape on campus is somewhat manufactured because it's really important to know that you're less likely to be subject to sexual violence on a university campus than if you don't go to university. And this is just something that people do not talk enough about, uh, especially in the US. And it's revealing why there's an emphasis to the contrary. Right. I mean, I think it's very revealing. I think in general, there's a lot of sort of period interest in what happens on university campuses because people just sort of, you know, are interested in young people, um, but also because wealthy people send their children to universities and so have a kind of vested interest in what uh, happens to young women on university campuses. Um, and I think wealthy people don't have a lot of interest have close to no interest in what happens to those young women who never make it to university. At the same time, it is the case that like sexual assault is a reality on, on, on campus and generally isn't dealt very well with, um, especially at uh, wealthy universities who don't actually have an interest in remedying forms of gendered violence, what they're interested in is their liability to lawsuits, right? And you see uh, sexual harassment legislation or regulation uh, on universities' campuses going lockstep with recognition of legal liability, not actually even with the introduction of something like Title IX. It takes years until a court says that a university could be subject you know, to penalty for violating Title IX. Uh, that's what spurs universities to actually start creating this regulation. And so a lot of what Kipnis or the Gersons want to sort of dismiss as quotidian um, sexual interactions are actually kind of problematic interactions, but that very often aren't actually incidents of sexual violence. And then what happens is that the juggernaut of Title IX gets mobilized to, to deal uh, with those kind of problematic uh, sexual interactions. You write, quote, the task was to liberate sex from the distortions of oppression. You're talking about the second wave, not simply to divide it into consensual, unproblematic and non-consensual problematic. But, quote, since the 1980s, the wind has been behind a feminism which does not moralize about women's sexual desires and which insists that acting on those desires is morally constrained only by the boundaries of consent. Is this why people don't have a language to talk about oppressive or bad or totally regrettable sex other than to compare it to rape so often? Is what's happened that the pro-sex victory in the sex wars displaced any discussion over this wide range of problematic sex 
onto the politics of consent in a way is what you're arguing that anti-sex feminist politics live on, however unacknowledged in this really weird way, through the sex bureaucracy and politics of punishment, a, a form of, of, of sex politics that can never liberate us from bad and oppressive sex? So I think that is a, a plausible story, or at least it's a really important part of the story, right? So we have sex positivity coming as a kind of reaction formation against anti-porn, anti-prostitution feminism in the 70s. And it's also really importantly inflected by gay and lesbian rights movement. Um, and then and then you have the AIDS crisis where, you know, all of a sudden, as Maggie Nelson puts it, you know, just affirming the right to have consensual sex as a gay man becomes an extraordinarily radical thing to do all of a sudden, right? So there's a really important history here why consent can be seen as this radical political notion, right? Drawing the line, just saying, look, there's consensual good and non-consensual bad. When that idea was first introduced, I don't think was a particularly liberal idea. It came together with a package of ideas about sexuality that were supposed to be emancipatory and radical and queer. Um, but then by the time we get consent now, get by the time we inherit the consent framework, it's sort of stripped bare of a lot of that more radical history. We end up finding ourselves wanting to say sex negative things about sex that I think is plainly consensual. Uh, but because we only have the consent paradigm available to us, um, what we do is we say it's non-consensual. So for me, the paradigm case of this is uh, a lot of professor student sex. So increasingly regulated in the US, um, there are near total, I mean, there are total bans on professor, undergraduate student sex at lots of universities. Surprisingly, not so much in the UK, which I did not know. Really not so much in the UK. <laughs> so at Oxford, where I teach, it's like, you know, we definitely think you shouldn't have like a hot plate and you maybe don't want to sleep with your students. Like that's the vibe. But uh, even here, increasingly, there are uh, some universities that regulate professor students sex so there is now a prohibition at UCL or at University College London where I used to teach and I think that's the direction we're moving in but when these regulations are justified people invariably point to consent so they say things like the difference in power between professor and student you know at least puts into question if not totally precludes the possibility of meaningful consent on the part of the student and so I think that's a way of exactly channeling a kind of sex negative thought that there's something kind of politically problematic in many cases, many instances of professor student sex, but through the language of sex positivity. The question of carceral feminism comes up again in your discussion of sex work. You write, quote, the feminist debate about sex work very often involves a tension between two levels of analysis, between the symbolic force of sex work and its reality. And, quote, Sex work has thrived under every legal regime. What has varied are the conditions under which sex is bought and sold, and in particular whether clients and workers are subject to the coercive power of the state. The criminalization of sex work is in this sense a symbolic abolition, a striking out of prostitution in the law, but not in reality. What do you think motivates anti-sex work feminists' symbolic 
abolitionism? And why and how does that in practice lead to the oppression of actually existing sex workers who don't just disappear? So I think for most anti-prostitution feminists, there's a symbolic satisfaction in using the law to punish male clients, the men who buy sex, as stand-ins for patriarchy in, in general. So they become symbols, these very charged symbols of male sexual entitlement, but also charged symbols of male uh, economic uh, and social domination, right? Because they're they're rich enough to be able to spend their money on a non-necessity, sex, right? Whereas uh, sex workers in general have to sell sex uh, to sustain themselves. So the male client becomes you know, the symbol, the, the uh, a broader symbol of, of male sexual and economic uh, social domination, also physical domination, because of course clients, not always, but very often can be physically violent um, towards women sex workers. And I think for lots of anti-prostitution feminists, there's a satisfaction in, in bringing the power of the, of the carceral state down upon them. The problem is that this harms the women who work in sex work as sex workers will tell you again and again and again. And so there is some kind of complex psychic contortion that happens on the part of anti-prostitution feminists. I mean, one thing that some people say is that anti-prostitution feminists just hate sex workers. And, you know, I think occasionally that is true. You can find anti-prostitution feminists who, who actually think that the women who work in sex work are- Treasonous to women. Exactly, are the great traitors to women and, you know, should be, should be up against the wall with the men when the revolution comes. Uh, but I, I think, I, I really think of someone like McKinnon as being very, very concerned about and moved by sex workers, but having a kind of willful disavowal of what it would really mean to be on the side of sex workers, materially speaking. And when this clash happens, the clash between the symbolic satisfactions of striking abolition out at the level of the law and punishing the men who buy sex, and on the other hand, strengthening the hand of the women, you know, the labor power of the women who sell sex, the, the choice will be denied and then resolved implicitly in the favor of the former. You forcefully argue against criminalizing sex work. Quote, what if what affective investment do anti-prostitution feminists have in the criminalization of sex work such that their genuine concern for sex workers ends paradoxically in a refusal to hear what they have to say? But if I read you right, you don't seem to concede that for some women, sex work could be not just an economically necessary experience, but also a positive one. Am I right? and I could be wrong here, that you agree with anti-sex work feminist symbolic opposition to sex work, even as you oppose its carceral application, is there any place in your analysis for a woman liking the profession of being a sex worker as much as anyone can like selling their labor for wages under capitalism? So, you know, I mean, I think what's, one thing that's really important to note is that for um a lot of sex workers, sex work is not the only work available, it's the best work available, right? For some, it really is the only work available. That's very often true for 
trans women, undocumented women, uh, disabled women who work in sex work at, at disproportionately high rates. But for some women, uh, it's just preferable to like cleaning toilets on someone else's schedule for less money. You can have more autonomy. Uh, it really depends on under what legal jurisdiction you're in. You can have more management of your time. If you have children, young children you're caring for, you can have more, you know, more flexibility in, in being able to spend time with them. So that's a question of kind of relative preference. You know, I'm I, I'm I'm completely convinced that there are sex workers who like actually enjoy their work, as you said, insofar as anyone can enjoy having having to sell uh, their labor. I take my cue on this, though, from Gino Mack and Molly Smith, who are two really extraordinary uh, British sex workers and authors of Revolting Prostitutes, uh, which is a book everyone should read. So they want to defigure, uh, decenter the figure of what I believe they call the erotic professional. So this is supposed to be the figure of someone who sees sex work as a calling. <laughs> they see they they take great pride in the, the in the work they do. They really enjoy it. They tend to make a lot of money from it. And there really are these these women, right? I mean, like Stormy Daniels. You know, she did this um, video where she was like, I pay my taxes. I do this. I do this. Like, I'm living the American dream. Like, I'm a good citizen. I'm in good standing because I pay my taxes and I'm a business owner. And the reason uh, that'll be obvious to you and your listeners why Mac and Smith want to decenter this is, well, you know, this just isn't the reality of sex work for most sex workers and the defense of sex work and the decriminalization of sex work should never have to rest on the fact that there are such women. Um, so I certainly don't want to deny that for uh, some women who work in sex work, it, it's an enjoyable uh thing to do. It might even be a vocation. Um, they might even be living out the American dream. But I don't think a political defense of decriminalization sh should rest on that. And in fact, I think it needs to rest on the shared premise between you know, proponents of decriminalization and so-called abolitionists, which is that a lot of sex work is immiserating. And the question is, how do you make it better? To step back a little bit, you write, quote, debates about porn, is it a tool of patriarchy or an exercise of free speech, came to preoccupy the women's liberation movement in the U.S. and to some degree the U.K. and Australia, and then to tear it apart. And porn was at the center of a broader set of conflicts during feminism's second wave over the politics of desire that pit anti-sex feminists, pro-sex feminists, pro-woman feminists, political lesbians, and socialist feminists against one another in various configurations, depending on what the issue under debate was. The questions interrelated were about to what degree one's desires should be shaped to match one's politics, whether heterosexual marriage was okay or whether political lesbianism was necessary, whether personal or structural transformation was needed, whether capitalism or the patriarchy was the foundational problem. Before we get any further, what were the key lines of debate and the key factions within the feminist movement of the second wave? And why was it that the feminist sex wars and conflicts over porn amongst all of these different debates that were going on became so central? One issue that's not actually talked about very often um, in sort of mainstream rehearsals of of this period of um, feminist political history is the question of the state and the extent to which 
feminists should look to state power as a kind of remedy or potential remedy or tool for gender justice. So you have early women's liberation movement activists, very skeptical of state power. They're setting up totally autonomous community centers, daycare centers, abortion networks, domestic violence shelters, and don't want state funding. Of course, the lure of state funding, um, especially as wages start uh, getting repressed, becomes very hard to to resist for some feminists. And this relates to to pornography in in that there was actually quite a lot of early protest against pornography um, in the late 60s and very early 70s, but that took sort of non-statist forms, as it were. So you would have just like protests, sit-ins, protests outside uh, in front of billboards, um, leafleting uh, vendors of pornography, but there wasn't the kind of invocation of, of state of state power, but then as the anti-porn feminist camp gets a stronger hold within in the mid 70s onwards, obviously state power starts being invoked, most obviously in the case of the creation of Dworkin and McKinnon's civil ordinances against pornography. So that's one major issue is, you know, state power and how we should think about it um, and the extent to which it can be actually used as a tool for feminist justice. There's a question about what lies at the bottom of women's oppression, right? Is it is it capitalism? Is it fundamental kind of material realities? Or is it sex? Is it, uh, and specifically something like male sexual entitlement, the construction of women as sexual objects um, to be used and consumed? Those aren't the only two answers, and a very important alternative answer is is reproduction, women's relationship to biological reproduction, which of course in someone like Firestone can take a very explicitly sort of Marxist framework, right? So women's relationship to the means of reproduction lies at the basis of the most fundamental important class division, the division between the sexes. So pornography also ends up becoming a site of that argument about uh, what the the foundations of women's oppression. There's the question of women's sexual agency and women's sexual pleasure. There's sort of two views, broadly speaking. There's the view on which women's pursuit of sexual pleasure, even under patriarchy, is a good good thing. It's an expression of uh, female autonomy and independence and actually pushes against a conservative understanding of women as as not locuses of of pleasure, not subjects of pleasure, but simply givers of pleasure, versus a view, the kind of view that McKinnon famously advocated for, on which women negotiating for pleasure under patriarchy is just a sign of how bad things are. The fact that women are capable of taking physical pleasure in sex that is fundamentally inegalitarian, and whose script is is one of male domination and female subordination is is really a is at best a kind of tragic and very meager compensation. And then there's this uh, this important uh, question: the relationship between the political and the personal, and the extent to which the political should reshape the personal versus the extent to which the personal should be cordoned off from forms of political scrutiny. How you feel about this often often goes hand in hand with, I mean, not necessarily, but like your your view on kind of queer 
queer politics more, more broadly speaking in this period, right? So uh, anti-prostitution feminists are also in this period very against the practice of lesbian sadomasochism. And in fact, when they gather at uh, the famous Barnard sex conference, which happens in the early 80s to protest what they see as feminists supporting pornography, they also wear t-shirts saying against lesbian sadomasochism. The idea being that lesbian sadomasochism simply reinscribes traditional straight scripts of uh, male domination and female subservience. And there's a kernel of anti-trans feminism in that argument as well, if I read it right. Yeah, I mean, the, the connection between sort of radical feminism and anti-trans feminism is, is complicated. A lot of people want to kind of retell the story such that all radical feminists were trans-exclusionary, which isn't true. It's it's certainly not true of someone like McKinnon. You know, one of McKinnon's very first clients in a sex discrimination suit was a, a trans woman um, incarcerated in a male prison. But of course, there are certain kind of ideological connections between a certain kind of radical feminism and uh, a certain kind of anti-trans view. And specifically, there can be a trend towards, a tendency towards a rejection of like dissident forms of sexuality and sexual experimentation and a kind of fear and anxiety about queerness and queer expression. So you see that very obviously in the movement against lesbian sadomasochism, right? And it's a kind of uncomplicated reading of sado, uh, lesbian sadomasochism. Lesbian sadomasochism must just be a rehearsal of stereotypical straight dynamics. And by the way, so much, so must sadomasochism. So they, they're not going to think that, well, maybe sadomasochism involves like sometimes an interesting um, inversion of typical dynamics, right? There's not going to be much interest in the dissident or transformative possibilities of, you know, the, the female uh, dominatrix. So there can be a certain kind of anti-queer, anti-creative, you know, sex-creative tendency within within radical feminism, which I think gets gets uh, really strongly expressed within uh, in the height of the anti-porn uh, the anti-porn movement. Today you write, porn really isn't part of the debate anymore over problematic sex, but you argue that it should be because you argue that porn is powerful. Quote, by the time my students got around to sex IRL, later, it should be noted than teenagers of previous generations, there was, at least for the straight boys and girls, a script in place that dictated not only the physical moves and gestures and sounds to make and demand, but also the appropriate affect, the appropriate desires, the appropriate distribution of power. The psyches of my students are products of pornography. The warnings of the anti-porn feminists seem to have been belatedly realized. Sex, for my students, is what porn says it is. What What is porn today, and what does porn teach the people, in this case, the young people who view it, about sex and gender? Good. So I think the, the what is porn is a really good question, because implicitly what I'm talking about in, in that passage you just read is f- mainstream free porn hosted by one of the major porn sites, um, which are p- powered by very sophisticated algorithms, whose basic function is to bring 
different people's desires into a kind of conformity. The porn hubs of the internet. The porn hubs. I mean, porn hub, right. And and then the other sites, the, the handful of other sites like them, which basically give people free access to pirated content. And the reason it's really important to, to be talking about porn in that sense is that there's a lot of porn that is not captured in that in that description, right? So we're not talking about independent porn, lesbian porn, uh, crip porn, all of this porn that's produced by people who are deliberately trying to work against the pornographic mainstream, most of whom for obvious reasons charge for access to pornographic sites and most people just don't pay for their porn. So if you wanna have an ethical relationship towards pornography, you should be doing the same thing you do to your favorite musical musical artists, which is you know paying them, paying them for their content. And you should be refusing to use those sites that strip money uh, away from the people who actually work in and produce porn. The Pornhub has seriously eaten into the already not very great money that is made by the women who work in you know the professional porn centers. So that's what I, what I mean when I'm talking about my students being psychic products of pornography. They're not psychic products of uh, the wild, amazing plethora of pornography uh, that's that's available online. They are products of a very um, slim and narrow and highly curated selection of internet pornography because they watch the free stuff. Now, the feminists, the anti-porn feminists of the mid 70s and 80s wanted to argue that pornography was like the whole lynch, like the linchpin of patriarchy and the ideological training ground of patriarchy as such. And I certainly don't want to suggest that that's true. I think that is a, a at the very least a gross overstatement. But Robin Morgan's fam- famous uh, dictum was pornography is the theory, rape is the practice. Yes. But what's so interesting about Robin Morgan, the line that's not quoted, I mean, so that line is quoted without citation in the Mies Commission report, which was- Which was Reagan, the Reagan administration, Edwin Meese, his attorney general, and his right-wing Christian fundamentalist uh, investigation of, of pornography. Right. Uh, for which uh, McKinnon and Dworkin both gave testimony and they quote, the, the report quotes um, the Robin Morgan line, but doesn't quote the line from, you know, like a page later where Morgan says, like basically, that said, I have zero hope in legislators being able to create or enforce laws that would do anything about this because the moment Republican legislators start thinking about pornography, what they're doing is like condemning it with one hand and the other hand is down their trousers, right? So anti-porn feminists saw pornography as this like ideological training ground for patriarchy as such. I'm interested in making the, the narrower point that at least on the reporting of my students and also a lot of other young people who have kind of come of age sexually with internet porn in a way that people of my generation, your generation simply didn't, is that pornography exercises this quite strong pedagogic power on how they actually have sex to the point where they don't really see what it would mean to have sex outside the pornographic script. I mean, I remember, I mean, you'd be surprised in my classroom, basically my students spend a lot of time lamenting 
the way in which they've been taught to have sex by the screen, which is a very powerful medium, a very powerful pedagogical medium, at the same time expressing a skepticism about the possibility of like figuring out how to have sex without the instruction of the screen. And the particular dynamic a lot of young people, I think, feel that they have to play out is a very kind of conventional one of male physical and psychic dominance, female submission, where the sexual act uh, is oriented around male penetration, where it has its logical conclusion in the male orgasm and ejaculation. And it's a very constraining script for lots of people. And there's that. And I think so there's an important sense in which in the age of internet porn, a lot of what someone like McKinnon or Dworkin uh, was warning about has, has come true. Can good porn defeat bad porn? Because you write, quote, the demand for better representation leaves in place the logic of the screen, according to which sex must be mediated, and the imagination is limited to imitation, riffing on what has already been absorbed. But you also, and you touched on this a little bit earlier, discussed non-mainstream porn, particularly feminist and queer porn, that can use the power of film as a sort of counter-pedagogy. And that's something we have to consider, I think you write, because porn isn't going away. You write, quote, at a practical and technological level, albeit not a philosophical one, the internet has settled the porn question for us. It was one thing to entertain the possibility of abolishing porn when porn met top shelf magazines and seedy movie theaters, when porn had a physical location and was, in principle, containable. So given the reality of the screen, what is to be done? Is the problem the depiction of sex by way of the screen or photograph for the purpose of sexual arousal? Or is it the for-profit industry dominated by sites like Pornhub, sites that, as you as you mentioned earlier, have, quote, ha- have engaged in techno piracy to basically rob women sex worker performers? Is the problem that Pornhub dominated Pornhub style industry that conveys particular ideas of what sex is? So I think the primary problem is exactly what you just said. I mean, it is the Pornhub form. It's not only extremely exploitative of uh, the content makers from whom they steal content, but it's also powered just like Facebook by algorithms that have a very particular function. So to take a very specific example, if you type threesome into Pornhub, you're never going to get three men or two men and a woman, (laughs) you know, you're going to get the canonical straight male fantasy of two women and one man, and you can just guess exactly how they're going to have sex. So it's also very restrictive in that way. I mean, Pornhub gives you this feeling of endless possibility, but actually, you know, it's, it's, its entire model is about bringing your desires um, and preferences into conformity with everyone else around you so that more stuff can be uh, sold to you. So that, of course, is is the fundamental problem. And I'm really interested to see, um, especially given what's happened with OnlyFans, you know, when we're going to get to the point of sex workers themselves creating alternative platforms um, for the selling of online sex work. I mean, it's very hard because you need a huge amount of 
online infrastructure, which requires capital, and angel investors probably aren't going to hand over uh, cash to a like a cooperative of sex workers who wants to start a, a rival to OnlyFans. But you know, if I had a lot of money, that's probably one of the first things I would I would do because I think it would just be an extra. I mean, just as you. I mean, this is the same question that so many people are asking about rideshare apps. Like, what does it look like to have a cooperative of drivers actually, you know, take on Uber? And that's exactly the same sort of question we should be asking in sex work, because something like OnlyFans or Pornhub is never going to be respectful of the labor of of sex workers. So that is absolutely the fundamental problem. I have this further anxiety about the screen. You said film or photographs. I think they're very, very importantly different. For reasons that, you know, film theorists, uh, especially in the 70s and 80s, were talking about. So someone like Laura Mulvaney. Yeah, exactly. There is something special about film, especially when it is it takes the basic sort of Hollywood form where you have the protagonist centered or uh, you have or the, you have the charged object centered, usually the woman, the cameras where the gaze of the man is. Right. I mean, and, and there's very little to disrupt you from, you know, the reality, you know, the, the simulacrum of reality that that uh, is being shown on on screen, I think. And I think some people for good political reasons want to just kind of assimilate what happens on the screen to like all other media but I think if you take this is just not to take seriously like how visual we are and what's very specifically special about the medium of film and it does become a kind of substitute for the imagination it's not really a political point I think our politics would be great if we could just take on board the kind of political and economic critique of something like Pornhub Um, but maybe it's just the Luddite in me that is sort of nostalgic for the kind of visual sexual imagination that wasn't so uh, reliant on uh, an external scripted medium so part of the pro- part of the solution is sex worker control of the means of porn production but even then it seems like taking porn out of the hands of the porn industry capitalists doesn't quite fix this problem with the filmic mediation of sex being so central to sexuality today there's a question about how seriously we should take that that problem politically it might just be something that sort of uh, lost to us and we're going to have to or it's something that we will have to come to terms with as we finally eventually you know if humans live long enough in general come to terms with internet technology which is not something we've really begun to do I, I I would think the conversation about internet porn would have to go hand in hand with a broader conversation about the general way in which social life is increasingly mediated by the screen and and media uh that doesn't seem to me like a deeply politically pressing uh, issue, but I do think, um, you know, if, if we last long enough, it's it's something that, you know, the human species would uh, profit from thinking about. You write, quote, it would be too easy to say that sex positivity represents the co-option of feminism by liberalism. Generations of feminists and gay and lesbian activists have fought hard to free sex from shame, stigma, coercion, abuse and unwanted pain. It has been essential to this project to stress that there are limits to what can be understood about sex from the outside. Yet it would be disingenuous to make nothing of the convergence, however unintentional, 
between sex positivity and liberalism in their shared reluctance to interrogate the formation of our desires. I think I think you're right here that the public-private distinction is no doubt a core feature of liberalism, and it serves serves to protect private forms of power and oppression from political scrutiny and challenge. But on the other hand, the total subsumption of the personal to the political and to the social can feel either authoritarian or just plain unrealistic. How do you navigate that tension? I mean, I think that's a question of good political practice rather than a question to be answered a priori. I think we've gone about as far as we can go a priori. So we know that we want to be able to engage a critique of the private sphere, including the private sphere of desire, while avoiding kind of authoritarianism without sort of demanding the impossible, but also probably not without without sort of taking up the posture of the demand. I mean, there's this, I mean, another way of sort of putting the problem is that, you know, a politics that is too personalized becomes depoliticized, right? It, it, it just becomes a, um, a practice of neoliberal self-fashioning. So, so now here's one more thing I can add to my list of things of radical self-care and self-perfection. You know, I'm going to drink my smoothie and do my, I don't actually even know what these things are. And then I'm, and now I'm also going to like spend half an hour scrutinizing my desires, right? I mean, that's the kind of, that's one, one worry. But on the other hand, a politics that like totally refuses um, the interrogation of the personal just reinscribes all of those forms of um, insidious domination and and re- recreates them. So I take this to be just an instance of a much broader question in radical politics about the role of something like prefiguration, which always ha- tends to to one of these sort of two poles. Um, one, you know, one pole where it's, it sort of becomes an end in itself for those who are initiated and uh, deeply authoritarian and alienating for those who are resistant. The other pole is just a kind of liberalism, right, where the, the invocation of the personal just becomes a kind of cover for for broader practices of domination. So I don't I, I don't suppose I have a really like specific answer to this question. I just think of it as a piece of this kind of broader practical problem that a radical politics faces. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on patreon.com. You definitely know about The Dig since you're listening to this podcast, and you probably know about Jacobin, which helps put out The Dig. But you might not know about Catalyst, a journal of theory and strategy. Capitalism is once again up for debate. Catalyst, a journal of theory and strategy, is a scholarly journal produced by Jacobin Foundation that aims to do everything it can to promote and deepen this conversation. Its focus is, as the title suggests, to develop a theory and strategy with capitalism as its target, both in the North and in the Global South. That's an ambitious agenda, but this is a time for thinking big. You can check out Catalyst's great essays, including contributions from scholars like Mike Davis, and subscribe and print for just $20 for an entire year by going to bit.ly slash digcatalyst. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash digcatalyst.
You write, quote, we need more and better sex education. But the appeal to education, like the appeal to the law, is often based on a misguided view of its transformational power. Are we surprised when teachers have difficulty talking about the patriarchal construction of sex? Will any amount of teacher training, short of full feminist consciousness raising, change that? And which state is going to pay for that? There are states, though, at least one state that pays for this. The, the Netherlands comes to mind. And granted, it is very hard to imagine winning that sort of feminist and women's pleasure-oriented sex education here in the U.S. or in the U.K. or in a lot of places. But is it any harder than it is to imagine winning Medicare for All or a Green New Deal or so many other things that we need to survive and thrive on this planet? Why Why so much skepticism towards better sex ed? No, that's fair. I, I'm, I don't think I'm any more skeptical towards better uh, sex ed than uh, a Green New Deal, which is to say that I think they are, they are both like excellent non-reformist demands. The, and I think the case of the Netherlands is, is a really, really good one. Um, and there are other cases of um, places with just really excellent sex education curriculums, all of which have the feature of starting very, very young. Right. So the moment it also has the uh, these are also places where student kids go to school very, very young, which is also should be uh, something that is universally demanded. So, you know, it's got to start young enough to truly send religious conservative parents into a panic. Exactly. If you're not (laughs) making them freak out, then (laughs) if they know that you have got them young enough to indoctrinate them, then then, you know, you're you've got the right demand. You have to invest, but you really, you just do have to invest a huge amount of um, state resources in the training of teachers in being able to deliver this kind of, uh, this kind of teaching. And probably special and probably specialized teachers, not training the gym teacher to be a better sex ed teacher, but having a core of teachers who specifically go to school to teach sex ed. Exactly. And who teach it from, you know, four years old onwards. Um, and it's very like age specific curriculum. It's, it's nationalized and it's, you know, rolled out. Yeah. And it's, it is actually totally uh, doable if there's, if there's a will and if there aren't um, the systematic obstacles that are in place, like somewhere like the U S where um, every school board in every Republican controlled area would reject it and then tell lies about everyone who's proposing it. Revealingly in the U.S., though, similar to how the so so much of the sex debate that you write about is polarized between simply consensual or non-consensual sex, the sex education debate in the United States has polarized between conservatives who advocate abstinence only and liberals who advocate talk about condoms. And obscured from that is any actual meaningfully feminist, women's pleasure-oriented, just human, I don't know, I don't even know the right language to describe it, but just like actually substantively good and valuable sex education. Yeah. I mean, let's be clear that um, even the best sort of public sex education in in the US and the mainstream is, um, it's not sex education. It's like how not to get pregnant or STDs education. Exactly. Is this worry about porn you, you wonder, really just another child sex panic? You write, quote, The invocation of young people in political discourse often serves reactionary ends. Calls to protect their innocence are based on a fantasy of childhood that does not and never did exist, a childhood untouched by the world of adults and adult desires. 
the appeal to childhood innocence also tends to draw an implausibly sharp distinction between the way things were and the way things are now, skating over continuities, between the Rolling Stones and Miley Cyrus, between Top Shelf magazines and Pornhub, between making out in the back row and the dick pic. And as an aside, there has been a lot of moral panic over dick pics, including panics that have led to the prosecution of teenagers in recent years in the United States. And, you know, this is not a new story. You write Christian conservatives have long been on board with feminist anti-porn politics. You mentioned the Mies Commission. And you also ask just who are these young people that we're worrying about? You write of today's youth, quote, they have a sensitivity to the workings of gendered and racialized power that outstrips anything seen before in the political mainstream. So this is a generated fixated on gender and sexuality and justice, but it's also the first Pornhub generation. What does that mean? Are the kids, in fact, all right? Or is something wrong beneath the surface of, of new pronouns, renewed feminist identification, and professed sexual empowerment. You note, for example, that young people are having less sex than ever these days in the West. For all the hand-wringing that we see among adults, when, when you set that aside, what's interesting to me is the way young people, especially young women, speak about their own sex lives. And, and these are often the, young, the very same young women who the ones I'm talking about there, who have this kind of extraordinary sensitivity to patriarchal domination, to racial domination, who are, you know, thinking in these more explicitly politicized ways than, than I did when I was uh, their age. But nonetheless, they so often express just a fundamental dissatisfaction, which I guess could be, they basically often end up saying, wow, I'm, I'm just not having sex on my terms. I mean, that's interesting, right? And so one thing you might think is that they've just been sort of deluded into thinking that things are worse for them than they have been for other generations, right? But another thought you might have is that the reason that they are better feminists is in part because their objective worsening conditions kind of require them to be, right? It becomes a kind of way of intellectually managing a social and cultural situation in which their sense of agency and pleasure um, and subjecthood is increasingly imperiled. And that is the sense I get from a lot of, not all, but a lot of the young people I've spoken to who will often sort of come into thinking about feminism as kind of sex positivists, they think of themselves as really owning their sense of themselves, their bodies, and then come to think, come to have a kind of more honest understanding of, of their own experiences as actually being like deeply disappointing. And the promises of, of sex positivity haven't, haven't borne out for them. So if it's a moral panic, if it's a child moral panic, then it's one in which the children, are, <laughs> the so-called children, and they're not children, are colluding. Now, of course, that has historically happened as well in the case of um, the daycare, so, you know, satanic daycare uh, workers, sex panic. Again, feminists, some feminists colluded in and put many uh, innocent daycare workers in prison for supposedly uh, sexually assaulting children, but those were literal children, right? What I think is interesting is that you have a generation of women and sometimes men in their 20s who 
I think, want to articulate a kind of interestingly contradictory experience of being at once sort of more in charge of their, uh, like, their sex lives than ever before, but also like being deeply dissatisfied. Something very wrong about sex today among young people are the young men not having sex who identify as incels. When we talk about incels, who are we talking about? This began as an online phenomenon, but in recent years has expressed itself as horrific IRL violence. So the word incel comes, I mean, it's a shortening of involuntary celibate. So originally was introduced by a young woman um, who started an online support group for people who were uh, lonely and wanted uh, romantic and sexual relationships, but um, couldn't have them or weren't able to to find people to have them with. So historically, uh, the word incel just refers to any such person. In fact, now the word refers to a very specific uh, member of a subcultural group of usually young men, um, predominantly white men, who not only uh, want to have sex or want to be in relationships and aren't, um, but feel themselves to be in a really deep and profound sense entitled to sex and relationships uh, with women who don't want to have sex or relationships with them. Who do incels blame for their lack of sex and who do they think they have the right to have sex with and why do they think they're not getting that sex? You you might want to pause here to explain, to offer a little bit of an incel glossary, including terms like female hypergamy, chads, stacies, blackpilling, etc. On the incel worldview, there is a small number of uh, men who sit on the top of a sexual hierarchy, hierarchy of male desirability, sometimes called chads, and they hoard all of the desirable women called Stacey's. And the desirable women are young, blonde, on the whole, slim, white, able-bodied. So what's interesting in this dynamic is that, uh, in this perceived dynamic, I mean, I should just say that this is inaccurate, statistically speaking. So um, actually, there are very, very few men who have uh, multiple sexual partners uh, in, in a year. And in fact, the number of women who are involuntary celibates is much higher than the number of men. So there are, are many more young women who want to be, or and older women who want to be in relationships or want to be having sex and aren't having it. So it's important to say that this is all basically a myth, but it's a very powerful mythological worldview. So who's to blame? Well, given what I've just said to you, you might think it's uh, equally like the men doing the hoarding, you know, the Chads and the Stacys who are, who are all to blame. Or you might think that they would invite a more kind of sophisticated structural analysis on which um, it's a hierarchy of uh, desirability, right, um, that structures a, a market in sex and relationships that's to blame, right? You might uh, think that the problem is um, the way we think of, of about sex is something that is a good that accrues uh, to people depending on where they stand in a hierarchy rather than as a relation between people who sort of see each other as, as equals. Uh, but in fact, incels typically blame women whom they see as 
uh, sort of shallowly responding to the qualities that make alpha men alphas, right? So they, women are so shallow that they all they care about are things like good looks and wealth. The irony, of course, is that the women that incels are complaining about are the people that they, the only women that they think of as actually desirable, who are going to be white, slim, conventionally beautiful women, right? So if, so there, there there's this, another part of the subculture, a related part of the subculture are self-identified femcells, women who think of themselves as incels, who are involuntary celibates. And they generally don't like male incels because they think that male incels aren't really incels. They're not really involuntary because they're only interested in having sexual and romantic relationships with a very particular kind of woman. They're not interested- The Stacys. The Stacys. They're not interested in shy women or women who aren't conventionally beautiful or women who aren't skinny or women who aren't white, right? Because they're not really interested in human connection. They're not even really interested in sex. They're they're interested in um, the status that comes with attracting high status women. And they and are possessing aggr- them. and possessing them. And they are aggrieved by their failure to get what they see as their due, what what they should be entitled to. Incels have this historical theory that I don't quite understand, where they blame the rise in feminism for leading to the creation of this purportedly new system that maldistributes sex in general and that denies sex to them in particular. And then, as you mentioned, they have zero interest in sex with any women who don't fit dominant ideals of what the very hottest sort of women are. And those ideals, of course, are produced by the very system that the incels rage against, but they don't identify it as such. What do incels believe feminism did to the distribution of sexuality? Right. So they think that feminism um, destroyed marriage. I mean, if only <laughs> feminism destroyed marriage. Um, and so it destroyed what's called enforced monogamy, right? What I mean, Jordan Peterson got a lot of shit for using that phrase, but the basic thought is you have this kind of cultural structure that requires people to pair off. And it means that individual men can't hoard large numbers of women, right? They only get at least lifetime sexual access to single, you know, an individual woman. I mean, that's also- Traditional Christianity limits the chads to one woman, at least after sowing their chad oats in college or whatever. Exactly, exactly. And it means that women can't all just like date the chads, they have to sort of date horizontally, um, and sometimes down in the hierarchy of male desirability. And so there's this there's this kind of sense in which, yeah, there's this kind of like prelapsarian, like moment where the beta males did inherit, right? Like they got women, they got sex because of the the structure of of enforced monogamy via marriage. Feminists came and ruined all of that and so stole women from incels, from like these beta males, these men who uh, uh, find themselves further down on a hierarchy. So it's this weird kind of like combination. It's this weird aggrieved entitlement, right? So it's this combination of seeing yourself as low status, but also seeing yourself as deeply entitled to something, and at the same time, completely missing the opportunity for a thoroughgoing feminist critique of the very structure that 
on your own view actually immiserates you. So the sexual revolution, in their view, was a connivance between opportunistic women who want to use sex to trade up the status hierarchy and chads who want to hoard all of the Stacys. Exactly. And of course, one thing that's missing from this, <laughs> wow. this story is the way in which um, the women's liberation movement in the U.S. and in the U.K. very much was a reaction formation against the sexual revolution. Um, you know, there were parts of the sexual revolution, most obviously like the pill, the end of the stigma or the the, the, the erosion of the stigma against non-reproductive sex. These were all uh, embraced by feminists, but feminists found- But Playboy was also a big part of the sexual revolution. Exactly. Feminists found themselves very unhappy because they found themselves still having sex on men's term, men's terms. Um, now, whereas before women were under pressure to be chaste, now they were under pressure to be promiscuous, lest they be like uncool. So needless to say, this is a very historically bankrupt, but nonetheless fascinating story. Re- referring to 22-year-old incel Elliot Rogers, who murdered six and wounded 14 before killing himself in 2014 in Santa Barbara. You write, quote, feminism, far from being Rogers' enemy, may well be the primary force resisting the very system that made him feel as a short, clumsy, effeminate, interracial boy inadequate. You continue, quote, this is the deep contradiction at the heart of the incel phenomenon. Incels oppose themselves to a sexual market in which they see themselves as losers while being wedded to the status hierarchy that structures that market. The incel phenomenon reveal that masculinity functions in a way similar to whiteness, ob- obscuring common oppressions and their actual sources, whether in patriarchy or capitalism, by blaming even more oppressed people for their own oppression? Or is that is that too simple? No, I think that's a very, very helpful analogy. And of course, you know, when you think about when, when I say this thing about, you know, feminism being the thing that that uh, might have saved uh, Roger, I mean, it's kind of tongue in cheek, but the obvious analogy is with aggrieved working class white people in, in the US where you think, yeah, it's not that there's not a there there, right? Like if you're at once one step away from and a million miles away from a radical critique of racial capitalism, right? And you're one step away from it because you are immediately immiserated uh, by a system that has a very clear opponent. um, And there's a very clear critique of that system that is immiserating you on offer right there for you. At the same time, racism very often will place you a million miles away from accepting that critique, right? Um, Because the compensations, the emotional compensation of a racial grievance, right, is too tempting. Uh, and I think there's a similar there's a similar thing with incels. I mean, you get the emotional satisfaction of grievance against women, um, and that's what puts you a million miles away from a kind of feminist critique that would actually that's actually very interested in dismantling the very hierarchy to which you, in some sense, like deeply object. You write that for socialist feminists, quote. The family as a site of feminine care serves capitalism by giving men emotional and sexual compensation for the coercion of market relations. Incel's real complaint is that there are no women to offer them respite from the very system that their ideology, in its insistence on women as status-conferring commodities, props up. Does socialist feminism really fundamentally complicate accounts of incels? Or does socialist feminism pose a real problem for the most commonplace accounts of what is going on 
with incels, which is which are accounts that solely emphasize aggrieved or toxic masculinity. Yes. Socialist feminism complicates the kind of standard narrative about incels in at least two ways. So certainly if you want to see the incel phenomenon as simply about men wanting to act out and unfortunately increasingly acting out their sexual their sense of sexual entitlement as men i think it le- that leaves out of the picture um grievance at something very real and pernicious which is a capitalist and actually specifically neoliberal logic of romance and sex, which doesn't see sex as uh, a relation that occurs between people, but a kind of luxury good, a status conferring sort of luxury good, and also a sign of one's economic status. But at the same time, there's also, I mean, so someone like Rebecca Solnit wants to think of what happens with incels as, as simply being a, a very kind of straightforward expression of the ideology of capital. And I think that's mistaken as as well for reasons that socialist feminists can, can help bring out. Because I think part of what incels are responding to, it's not simply that they, they think they can't afford to buy women. Right? They're not simply angry that they don't have enough, enough money to be able to have this thing that would confer status. There, there's also an anger that this thing, love and romance, which has, on their view, historically been outside of the domain of capital, has been brought under capitalist relations. I mean, that's a way of kind of describing what they thought of as happening with the sexual revolution. So sort of ironically, don't think of uh, marriage as this capitalist institution. They think of it as a kind of pre-capitalist institution that has this kind of egalitarian distribution of women. And then then you start having like an open marketplace and, and and that's bad. And it's bad not only, I think, on their view, because uh, they're being outcompeted, but because they think that there's something perverse about a competition in uh, in a realm of something that's supposed to be freely given, right? Women are supposed to freely give love and freely give sex to men. And, and, and that thought, I mean, the thought that that ideology, this ideological understanding of women's love and care and sex and attention as something freely given... And, and that in turn as a central part of like the working of, of a capitalist logic, which wants to have a strict dis- distinction between the home as a pseudo anti-capitalist space and then the market as the place of free competition. Like that's an important observation that we get from the socialist feminists of the 70s. And I think that's what you need to see to be able to really understand the insult phenomenon. You write, quote, the grievance politics of flailing white masculinity that fuel the manosphere have served as an ideological and material gateway to the more overt grievance politics of ethno-nationalism, from Gamergate, Red Pill, and Jordan Peterson to Unite the Right, Proud Boys, and Three Percenters. Why is it that internet-based misogyny is such a useful entryway for broader right-wing politics? I mean, I think a, a really good answer to that question would require um like a proper ethnographer of the internet, because I think you need to understand in part how things like YouTube and 4chan and Reddit operate. Um, but I think uh, we can we can answer that question at a, at a fairly 
schematic level by pointing out the kind of logical parallels between the incel worldview and the kind of alt-right worldview or other kind of reactionary worldviews. I mean, so for one thing, there's a huge emphasis on the natural and the given, right, with a lot of appeal to evolutionary psychology, right? There are just these basic universal truths about the way women and men are, which of course is what limits the possible critique of hierarchy uh, that feminism would want to encourage an incel to undertake. So you have this natural given, these hard limits to human nature, which the moment you start imposing those hard limits already kind of predict and put you on, on the road towards a kind of reactionary perspective. And you have, again, also an invocation of a certain traditional way of doing things that has been has been lost, which involves the invocation of patriarchal power and authority, right? The the authority of like the father to set marriages between the husband and the wife, the children, right? The the power of the heads of family to create strong states and and to organize social and political life and the importance of that kind of authority. And it's the erosion of of patriarchal power and patriarchal authority at every level that has led to kind of demise, right? So that's again, part of the narrative on both sides. And then that leaves particular individuals disenfranchised. And then you have this further ingredient of like the group who has benefited. So who's benefited? Well, it's going to be like women on the incel narrative and that's going to be poor people. It's going to be people of color, queer people and women on the kind of alt-right narrative. So it's very, very kind of analogous. Um, And so I think no surprise that once you buy into the basic logical structure of the kind of incel worldview, you can very easily slot into a kind of more, you know, a a thoroughgoing kind of alt-right perspective. I think another key thing that's happening here just occurs to me is that you have this, with incels, you have a nostalgia for lost tradition, but not any real hope that concerted right-wing political action can restore that lost tradition. Incel politics are an incredibly nihilistic politics. A key concept for incels is being blackpilled. This, this notion of coming to a realization that things are totally fucked and that the best you can do is to sort of fuck up the world. And I think today's right more broadly, and this is something I discussed with Wendy Brown a while back, today's right more generally is notable precisely for its nihilism. That seems absolutely right. And it and it marks a really important kind of break with other historical and very recent forms of conservatism, which think that there's something to still be conserved, right? There is the hope of preservation and and sustenance, we have to just fend off the forces of transformation. And it's interesting that, it's interesting to see where Jordan Peterson and his acolytes break off from incels, right? Because they go down much the same road, but Jordan Peterson is fundamentally of a very very traditional form of conservative. Clean your room, bucko. (laughs) Exactly. Clean your room, shine your shoes. But, you know, that's a message of hope, right? Not all is lost. Um, Some of it's within your individual control. And also, what's the appeal? The appeal is to the stuff your father always told you to do, right? 
there is a possibility of the reassertion of- And Peterson's your new dad. And Peterson's your new dad, and dad's going to tell you what to do. And there's the reassertion of patriarchal power, and don't worry. So fundamentally hopeful. And what he's interested in, and he's always said that the kind of young men he's interested in are like the hopeless ones or the ones who are kind of flirting with nihilism, right? And the incels are the ones who just refuse to to shine their shoes. Yeah. So though there are all these commonalities between a Jordan Peterson and whatnot and the incels, they there is a fundamental difference because Jordan Peterson believes that they are, in fact, cells. Yes, exactly. And then you have pickup artists who are kind of the neoliberals of, uh, right? So you've got Peterson, who's like old school, folksy, you know, conservative. You've got the nihilists who are the incels. And then you've got the pickup artists who are the neoliberals who are like, it's about new forms of perfectibility that you can achieve through, you know, very specific forms of hustling. And a lot of it's about pretense, right? So it's the same discourse of like, well, yeah, really, you can't, you don't know how to do, you don't have any of these skills, but you're just going to pretend you have all these skills. You're going to talk your way into this, into this new position. If you're not happy, well, that's because you haven't, you know, you haven't found the, the right hustle yet. Yeah. The incels say that there's an intractable structural problem created by certain, you know, bizarre kind of historical factors that they believe have taken place, but they believe there's a structural problem. The pickup artists take the neoliberal view that we live in a meritocratic society and certain men have a skills deficit that can be remedied with the proper training to compete and thrive in today's marketplace. Reskilling. Yeah. And then Jordan Peterson is an old school traditionalist who believes that you just need to get back back to basics. Get back to basics and listen to your dad. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. You note that the phrase involuntary celibate was coined by a self-described nerdy queer woman in the late 90s. And yet today, incels by and large deny that female incels exists. But there is a subreddit, r true femcels, where, quote, a recurring theme is the hypocrisy of incel men who claim to be too ugly or socially awkward to find love and sex, but who are explicitly uninterested in conventionally unattractive or socially awkward women. Femcells say that such men are not true incels, but volcells, voluntary celibates. I wonder, reading this, are you gesturing here to a counterfactual incel politics, liberated from misogyny? You argue that there is no right to sex but that we do all have a duty to interrogate the politics that underpin our desires to denaturalize and question them. Why and how does this shed light on how to think about the incels? I mean, isn't it just so interesting when you have a group of women who are in an objectively sort of similar situation to men that they, um, and even, and, and self-describe in that way and create their own subculture that they, they don't go out killing? <laughs> it's a notable distinction um, between it's a notable two people in an objectively similar situation. And but they of course get to the heart of the matter, right? Because uh, and so in that sense I do think it's a kind of you know counterfactual experiment, right? So what happens when you you have a group of people, you have a group of women who self-consciously identify as uh, people who would like to be in relationships and aren't because they can't find anyone who wants to be in relationships with them and who correctly notice, at least presumably correctly in in many of their cases, that that has something to do with where they 
sit on a higher a status hierarchy, right? Because many of these women will say that they are socially awkward, some of them are on the spectrum, um, they aren't conventionally attractive, or they're just very shy. But, but what they do is they're, they're interested in the critique of that hierarchy as such. And that's why they just see through um, the male incel complaint, because their complaint is contradictory. They're complaining about the hierarchy, uh, their place in the hierarchy, but they're not interested in its dismantling. They're in fact the very people who are reinscribing uh, the hierarchy of female desirability. Um, so I do think, and you know, this is not the only kind of test case. You can think about how women of color, especially uh, black women, have dealt historically with sexual racism. Under conditions of white domination uh, in the US, for example, black women are typically coded as less sexually and romantically desirable. This, of course, doesn't map on to who, in fact, is uh, sexually desired, right? I mean, black women, for example, are disproportionately subject to sexual assault. But the response that black women have is a critical interrogation of, of racial hierarchies and sometimes a calling to account, uh, you know, for example, black men who aren't interested in, as a matter of policy, in dating black women or who will only date very uh, light-skinned black women. But there's, they just show that there's obviously a way of staging this form of critique um, that doesn't have to erupt into entitlement or certainly into entitled violence. A, a contrary example that you cite are the MR Asians, men right, men's rights Asians. Quote, Asian men who under the banner of anti-racism, taking a page from the playbook of angry white men, spew misogynistic vitriol at Asian women who date and marry white men. On the other hand, you write that Asian men do really encounter a spectacular amount of sexual racism, something that my old friend Yowei Shaw did a radio piece that you write about. You write, quote, a vexed question. When is being sexually or romantically marginalized a facet of oppression? And when is it just a matter of bad luck, one of life's small tragedies? Is it a question with a conclusive answer? Uh, it might have a conclusive answer, but not one that I know of. I mean, I think the case of um, sexual racism is 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 straightforward because there you have a case where we independently have a grip on racism as a structure of of domination. And so then when we notice that hierarchies of desirability are shaped and inflected by racial categorization, then it's pretty easy to say that insofar as someone is sexually or romantically marginalized or discriminated against because of their race, like that's that's problematic. But what happens when you don't really have an independent grasp on a structure of domination? I mean, so to, to give you an obvious example, like think about just being good looking, right? Right. Being con conventionally attractive. Conventionally attractive people do uh, like have much better outcomes. I mean, especially in <clears throat> deeply unequal societies like the US, but fairly robustly across the world. Conventionally attractive people make more money, they get better jobs, they they probably have better jury outcomes. I mean, all sorts of all sorts of things. So and certainly they are very highly prized 
in, in the economy of dating and relationships and marriage. So there's a kind of interesting question here, whether you should think about um, how useful it is to think about uh, the non-conventionally attractive as um, like a dominated group. And then more specifically, whether the kind of discrimination that the conventionally unattractive experience um, in the sexual marketplace, I mean, the extent to which that itself morally or politically problematic. I mean, I'll, I'll say one thing. I mean, you might just think that this is taking us down like an implausible road, but I think there are interesting questions that are specific to dating apps and how they uh, shape and inflect all of these issues. Because of course, things like you know the prizing of good looks or sexual racism predate uh, the existence of, of dating apps, but you might think that dating apps actually really underscore these dynamics and kind of encourage people in general to think in terms of deal breakers and requirements because you can you can actually do that now so you can just you know rule out people who are not tall enough or not rich enough and you can just swipe one way or another and so on one hand I think dating apps are a really good thing many of my friends found people they really love on dating apps but you might think they also encourage us to think in sort of non-ideal ways about like human communion and human relationships. But even even the question of sexual racism, while the problem is so clear on a structural and systematic level and the immorality, unethical wrongness of sexual racism, just abundantly clear, there's no debate to be had. What was really interesting about Yoe Shah's radio story for Invisibilia is that it's quite difficult and maybe extremely problematic to try to solve on the individual level. It's a really vexing problem. Yeah. So, I mean, there's so much to say here. So, I mean, one obvious thing to say is that presumably no one wants to to be taken out on a date by someone who is trying their best to politically correct their desires, right? In the case of Yoe Shah's story, for those who haven't, listeners who haven't listened to it, an Asian, young Asian woman who knows she has an aversion to dating Asian men who forces herself to date Asian men to get over that. Right. And no one really wants to be that Asian, any of those Asian guys on the receiving, on the receiving end of that particular form of attention. Right. But I'd I'd like to suggest that there's there's a difference between undertaking projects of determined self-refashioning, where you're trying to just get your desires to conform to your political principles. I think there's a difference between that and a different kind of project, maybe not even, which shouldn't even be thought of as a project so much as a, as an attitude, where one just leaves oneself open to the possibilities that one, one's desire might actually actually go flow in directions that, that one for political reasons do, do, doesn't think it will, right? I mean, desire can take us by surprise. I find on the whole that queer people, people who have like a history of queer sexuality are much more open to this kind of thought than than people who think of themselves as straight. In part, I think, because lots of queer people have had the actual experience of finding themselves desiring something or someone that they have been told they shouldn't desire or find desirable. And so there is an act of repression or disavowal or denial. And then there's a moment of that desire being set free from the kind of binds of politics. 
And it's that sort of experience that insofar as this is an individual project, I agree with you, it's largely not, it's a structural project. But I think that is an experience that does happen on the individual level and that can be kind of politically important. Well, along those lines, I wondered reading your book, does the political interrogation of our desires that you're asking us to undertake, does that include asking gay people to consider why they do not desire the opposite sex or asking straight people why they don't feel same-sex desire? I anticipate you won't see the two as equivalent, particularly among for women who, you know, as, as, as political lesbians argued, you know, decades ago, there are justifiable, politically justifiable reasons to reject men. And you do write that we might want to, quote, rethink the well-worn feminist distinction between political lesbianism and real lesbianism. What does the call to interrogate sexual desire mean for sexual orientation? So I think it's really important to note that most gay people, men and women alike, have already gone through a process of thinking about whether they're straight because they've been brought up with the presumption of being straight and so have actually spent a huge amount of time reflecting, doing precisely in a sense, at least some of the kind of reflection that I'm I'm interested in. Given that background and also given the very important political history of gay and lesbian people being subjected to conversion therapy, I certainly wouldn't suggest that they have to undergo any more of that scrutiny. Although I do think um, gay people need to think about things like sexual racism. I mean, so, you know, Grinder, for example, um, has very strong racialized through lines in a way that uh, Grinder itself has started to try to confront and trying to trying to deal with. And these are conversations that are happening much more among gay people than they are among straight people, because I think on the whole that, you know, gay people are just much more used to thinking about their, the kind of sex they have and the sex and the people they have sex with as political questions. When it comes to straight people, yeah, I mean, I think there is a, you know, I mean, I, I think it's not so much that I think it's like a political or a moral requirement that every straight person, especially if you're in like a long term loving straight relationship, <laughs> are like, I don't think you're required necessarily to like interrogate whether you're really straight. But like, it would clearly just be a better and more interesting and imaginative world if people did. And I think so many people have this sense of themselves as being resolutely something. And when I encounter people who have that sense of themselves as being resolutely something or another, I, I feel their unfreedom. It's not because there aren't resolutely straight people. I'm sure there are. But the insistence on the kind of top-down narrative, where it's like, no, 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 I'm definitely straight. No, I don't even have to think about it. You know, the very idea of another man's body, ugh. It's not. I, I don't think that this is like on the top of a, of a of um, a political to do list. But I do think, as we, if we're struggling for genuine, full human liberation, I think this would be a part of it. You ask, quote, "Must the transformation of desire be a disciplinary project, willfully altering our desires in line with our politics, or can it be an emancipatory one, setting our desires free from politics? How do you do the latter without succumbing?" To the former. And I know we keep kind of returning to that question. But then also, how would one liberate sex from politics, given that to me it seems that sex is inevitably embedded within politics? 
might a better way to put it, put the project be to transform politics and thus make sex more free rather than somehow to liberate sex from politics? I do want to endorse that that way of specifying the final project. So I do think what we're calling for is a kind of material, social, political, economic transformation that would make sex more free and would also make us freer to make sex more free, if that makes sense. But I do think that there are small acts of resistance that are possible, even kind of pre that, that sort of prefigure what what is possible in a kind of revolutionary moment to come now under kind of current political conditions. And I don't think that they're the the basis of our politics or that's what we should be going around trying to like make the end of all sorts of, I don't think something like a sexual, a true sexual revolution could be based solely on these small kind of dissident moments. But I think those moments are nonetheless important and can be very personally transfigurative. So I'm speaking figuratively when I say, you know, emancipating desire from politics. I don't think any such thing is possible. I think I've been kind of misread as positing some sort of like natural desire that is wholly good, that will, you know, will will want all of the right things equally and in equal measure, uh, if only if it weren't for politics. And that's obviously um, the sort of sex we had before we were expelled from the garden. Right. I mean, that's that's (laughs) absurd. Right. So I'm not trying to hanker back to some kind of prelapsarian sexual utopia. Um, But I think there are moments that, uh, you know, some people experience of just wanting something and avowing that desire or wanting someone and avowing that desire and quieting the voices of politics, which are at least partially internalized. Um, And I think that's a very powerful experience. I think it's one that's not only confined to sexuality. I think it's very obvious in the case of sexuality, but there are other forms of human engagement of which that's true. I think like there are some friendships that that are like that, right? There are where, of course, what's not literally going on is like some innate affinity, totally untouched by politics, but it can feel that way sometimes, right? It can have the phenomenology of like, in some sense, we shouldn't be friends, but we love each other and we're going to quiet the voices that would presume to instruct us not to have the particular kind of egalitarian relationship we do in fact have. But that's not the end goal. And that description is supposed to be a description of it from the inside. It's obviously not really a description of what's happening on the outside where it's all, it's all thoroughgoingly political and in an important sense. Well, Amiya Srinivasan, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Amiya Srinivasan is a professor of social and political theory at All Souls College and the author of The Right to Sex, Feminism in the 21st Century. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that every process of production is, at the same time, a process of reproduction. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Gemma Sack. Our senior advisor is Thierry Ofrancos. 
Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, same on Facebook. And please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it is on iTunes or wherever, please also take a moment to leave us a nice review and a rating. Those ratings and reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you telling other people to listen to the podcast, why you like it, why they will like it, etc. Please make propaganda for us and do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation going. Even a few bucks a month is huge. <laughs>